Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Elder Readers Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Penny C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, January 24th, 2019. Today we are reading from the big book, and we're starting Bill's story on page one. The readers for today are Kelly S., Nadia B., and Katie G. The, the uh, readers of the 12 Steps and Traditions, Diane G., the 12 Steps, and Esther F. will read the 12 Traditions for us. The reference numbers for yesterday, which is Wednesday, January 23rd, the 7 a.m. meeting was 12,452, 12,452. And the 10 a.m. Eastern meeting is 12,454, 12,454. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I am now going to call on Diane G. to read the 12 steps for us. Good morning, everyone. This is Diane G. from New Hampshire, Recovered, Not Cured, Compulsive Overeater. The 12 Steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to, each, to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, 
praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, Penny, and I pass. Thank you so much, Diane G. And now I'm going to ask Esther F. to read the 12 traditions for us. Good morning, Penny. Good morning, everyone. This is Esther F., a a recovered compulsive overeater from Cleveland, Ohio. The 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. Number one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants they do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Let's problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other other public media of communication. And twelve, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting me do service, and I pass. Thank you very much, Esther F. Now, this is how our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year, and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on the topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share Press star 1 to unmute, and once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book on page 1, Bill's story, and let me just say that um, I do believe it's a God thing that we're starting Bill's story on the 48th anniversary of his passing in 1971. And so I'm going to ask Kelly S. to start us off. All right. 
Good morning, everybody. It's Kelly S. Recovered in Oklahoma. Thanks for your service, Penny. Bill's story, uh, war fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew, which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral, much moved. I wandered outside. My attention was caught by doggerel on an old tombstone. Quote, here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death, drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot, whether he dieth by musket or by pot. End quote. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Well, I'm sure we'll get lots of good history on this from some of our historians that we'll be sharing next. But um, basically, uh, you know, when I came in, I heard... Um, one of our speakers on our line who really changed this story for me because I've been around for so many years and it was always hard to relate to some of the stories in here because these are from so long ago they're men they're heterosexual and uh, anyway so I heard you know from the beginning and I just want to say this to newcomers or people starting to listen to, to when I read Bill's story did I think like Bill thought did I feel like Bill felt and did I eat like Bill drink. And that's important as we start this story because it changed everything for me as we read this. And so when I when I take that in mind, you know, I this was my history, you know, it's like, you know, I would have times where, you know, food was great and and life was wonderful. You know, I mean, I've suffered from this disease my whole life and from depression and from from you know, I, I could see the progression when I look back, right? I can see the ominous warnings. I can see all the things, the red flags that showed me I had this disease, you know, this this ease in my spirit and my soul. But, you know, I was still always looking my whole life. And then, you know, I would get that thing where I would, everything would feel okay. I'd lose weight or I would think I'd get my food under control and I was part of life at last. You know, I'm thin. I've arrived, right? I'm arrived, you know. And, I mean, that was the first time I did that. I was in eighth grade. I finally arrived in eighth grade, you know. And then I arrived again in tenth grade. I lost weight for high school. And then I, I arrived again in high school when I was graduating. And then when I got married and I lost weight for all the right reasons and everything was okay again you know but then I never would look at all the red flags and things you know the minute I I got to where I think I had to be the disease kicked in and I was back and running and and off and searching and searching and everything I could from you know drugs sex alcohol people you name it and uh, you know I was always so very lonely you know that's what I didn't understand to me I was very lonely and I turned again to alcohol uh, because I didn't know I had the spiritual malady that we'll find out later in the book, you know. And I, you know, I know, I want to say I wish I'd have noticed the red flags, but I wasn't ready. They were all ominous warnings, right? There are a lot of red flags when I look back. But, you know, this is my path. Today I'm 56. I'm a recovered woman. It took me a while to get here. You know, yeah, I wish I had got it sooner, but I'm so grateful today because I speak to a lot of people, you know, that have been around who still don't have it. So I'm grateful today I did finally heed that ominous warning. You know, that's my path. I'm here. I've put down the food and everything else that was blocking me from my, my, my higher power. 
I don't have that loneliness inside anymore. That was the thing I never thought I would be able to fix, that deep loneliness. And I know I'm going to wrap up with this real quick, Penny. I'm just grateful today that that spiritual solution is the fix to that loneliness. I no longer have to turn to anything else for ease and comfort. And I'm grateful for day, today that we're on Bill's story and we're starting Chapter 1. Glad to be here. Thanks, Penny. Pass. Thank you, Kelly. Yes. Now we're going to take. I'm going to start taking some names. So help me out, and please just say just your name and say it once. And I'm going to do my best with God's help to hear the people that we need to hear from this morning. Oh, Madam, Madam, Nancy Nancy P. Nancy T. As in Tom, also. Sandy S. Harry P. Okay, hold on now. First person I heard last initial was C. Who was that? Pardon me? Lisa B. All right, here's here's who um, we're supposed to hear from first, okay? And and trust that you'll be heard um, in the second round if you really need to speak. So I have um, Matt M., Nancy P., Nancy T., Lisa B., and Amy G. Matt, get us started, please. Thank you, Penny, for your service. Good morning, everyone. This is Matt. I'm a postal reader. I'm a little under the weather, so excuse my voice for this morning. But I'm so grateful we're starting Bill's story again. It's where I get to learn about the founder of our program, what his story, actual story is, and what he went through. And uh, it's amazing that that dog roll on that tombstone is such a foreshadowing moment. It's very odd. It's very weird. It's very surreal. Like, there was a God moment there. If you look when you look later on, when he comes to look back on it and think back on it, because it's just so weird that, uh, you know, uh, he that was on the tombstone that he read that because it, it foreshadowed his life, how he was going to be a alcoholic and a drunk, and uh, his whole life was going to be um, um, given over to liquor. And I'm grateful that for me, I don't have to give my life over to king food anymore. I'm grateful just for today, I have a, a daily reprieve if I act on it come to the meetings, work the steps with my sponsor, make outreach calls, stay connected with people. Because this is this is a wee program and I can't do this on my own. I need you all. It takes a village to it takes a village to raise a compulsive overeater. And uh, I'm definitely um sometimes I, I, I look at the I look at things through the eyes of a child because I need to be I need to keep that sense of wonder because this disease is cutting baffling and powerful. I need to keep myself green and fresh. That's why I try to call newcomers when I can or someone who's struggling because, again, I don't have all the answers. But uh, I'm grateful I just can take it one day at a time and work this program the way it's meant to be worked through the big book. One step at a time, one day at a time. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Matt M. And now we're going to hear from Nancy P. from Boston. Hi, this is Nancy P. from Boston. Um, I'm just getting into my car, and I found it has been broken into. Um, I am speechless. I will um, defer till tomorrow. Thank you, Nancy P., and sorry for that. Um, Nancy T. Good morning, Penny. Thank you, Nancy T. 
recovered compulsive reader in Lewiston, Idaho. So grateful to be on the phone line with you all this morning. And uh, I could um, identify in with Bill a couple of places here in this first paragraph or two. Um, I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. Um, I remember when I graduated from college and I landed my first job as a court reporter and I thought I was it. I mean, oh boy, here I go. I can do whatever I want. I'm a real grown-up now. Um, and so just uh, food had already been a part of my life, but um, you know, now that I had a real job, you know, I had been working minimum wage jobs until I finished college and, and got a court reporter job, and I just envisioned myself um, food became more important to me only because I was socializing with, you know, um, attorneys and people in the legal profession, going out to, you know, nice lunches and stuff. And that kind of stuff is how food took on. Um, but it was definitely a beginning of the period where my disease really started to take off in bigger proportions and faster weight gain and that kind of thing. But, you know, I wanted to say this last line that Kelly read, ominous warning, which I failed to heed. I remember I went, I re when I was working as a motel maid cleaning motel rooms on the Oregon coast, I ruptured a disc in my low back and I was not um, obese by that time. I was maybe 15, 20 pounds um, overweight. Um, but when I went and saw the orthopedic surgeon who did the surgery on my back, he told me, he said, your weight is not a problem now, but I've seen people in your situation who um, become quite obese later in life and I'm just letting you know you know your back will not tolerate it because at 25 he told me I had the back of a 50 year old that was an ominous warning I let it was like the teacher on Charlie Brown wah, 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 wah. I didn't hear a word he said I'm like how do you who do you think you are telling me and I wonder today I often think about him and wonder how did he know what did he see in me that made him tell me that um, but, and of course, you know, we have, I, we all have the warnings from well-meaning friends and family and coworkers and, um, you know, who tell us, you know, why don't you just, you know, try this diet, do this, do that. But I just didn't see it being a problem. And, um, and of course, then I ended up ballooning to a top weight of 372 pounds and, uh, boy, I wish I had, um, heard the message back then, but. I really don't believe had I heard it that I would have um, acknowledged it at the time, just like I didn't acknowledge that ominous warning from the physician who did my back surgery. Thank you. Glad you're all here with me, and I'm going to pass. Thank you, Nancy T. Lisa B. Good morning, Penny. My name is Lisa B. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Greenville, South Carolina, and thank you for your service. Uh, the word, I was very lonely. I've always felt lonely as a child. I felt so empty inside. Honestly, I could hear uh, wind blowing through me. And I just knew from a very young age that something was very wrong and that how am I going to make it in this life, you know, um, feeling this way. Um, I discovered food with my binge buddy, Irene, and I discovered when I was in maybe eighth grade, well, I discovered it from a young age, but when I was with her, she introduced me to the salty and sweet, you know, like um, Fritos or potato chips and chocolate. And I just was in heaven. And I remember my mother saying to me, you know, you need to go out and ride your bike more because I was beginning to put on weight. And something inside of me clicked. Uh, my father was also a compulsive exerciser. And 
uh, really worried about his weight all the time. So I would be watching him. And my family was very focused on the outside, how I looked. My mother taught me from a young age never to go out of the house without any makeup on. And um, I remember when I got into college, I became... I loved the concept of restricting food, and I did become almost anorexic. I became really, really, really thin, and I loved that gaunt, skinny look of almost maybe like a heroin addict. I just loved it, and I felt powerful, and I did feel like men paid more attention to me when I was really, really skinny. Um, I started going in and sitting inside of churches, and I loved the peace and quiet in there, and there was something in there that called to me. I just didn't know how to get to it. I've always been seeking. And I do believe that food, restricting, compulsive exercise enabled me to survive. It gave me a way to cope. And I'm grateful I had it for the years that I had it because I might have imploded or committed suicide or something if I didn't have anything to give me the effect. I do know I was born this way and I know it's a spiritual malady. That's why I'm so grateful to have a plan that works, a way of living. So with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa B. And now, Amy G., it's your turn. Good morning. Thank you for your service. My name is Amy G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Wow, my name came up fast. Wow, great meeting, folks. And wow, how awesome to be starting Bill's story. And in my humble opinion, I think it bears a little bit of repeating here. You know, we've gone through the appendixes where we've heard that people have experienced and become recovered. And then in the doctor's opinion, we learn about the twofold nature of the disease, which is the physical allergy and the mental obsession. And now we're going to take a glorious journey of identification. Did I feel like Bill felt? Did I act like Bill acted? Did I behave? Did I think? You know, no, I wasn't a guy back in the 30s, but in every other way, I can relate to how he thought. I mean, what stands out for me today is, you know, the, the idea of the sublime and then from going to sublime thoughts and feelings to loneliness. And I can think in my eating history, you know, I don't know if I was born a compulsive overeater or I abused food and my alcoholic foods to the point of becoming, you know, a compulsive overeater. To me, you know, the debate's over. It just is what it is. But I can remember food taking a very important aspect of my life. You know, he says, I arrived at last. I never felt that I arrived. And food became very important to me in feeling a way to cope. That doesn't mean I ate because I needed to cope, which I did. I ate because I was a compulsive overeater. But the bottom line was food did something for me that helped me cope and survive in my childhood. And I start to understand the characteristics and the behaviors You know, this idea of selfishness, self-centeredness, you know, we're going to learn that we have to get rid of it or it kills us. I can see Bill's focus here completely on how he feels, what he needs, what he wants. And that's exactly what I wanted, you know. I wanted to always feel in the extremes of either wickedly happy, you know. I didn't want to have to feel any of the bad things. I didn't want to have to mature. I didn't want to feel uncomfortable. And that was another issue. I was uncomfortable in my own skin. So can I relate to Bill? You betcha. And I look forward to hearing, well, you know, look forward is a pun, but how the disease progressed because I relate to it quite a bit. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Amy G. And before I take more names, let me just remind anyone who may have come on a little bit late 
that we're starting Bill's story this morning on page one, and we read and are commenting on the first three paragraphs, ending with ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Who else would like to share? Harlan G. from Boston. This is Larry Kay. Let's stop for a minute. Let's stop for a minute. I heard Harlan, Katie G, and Larry. Let anyone else who I didn't hear. Nicole C. Marie J. All right, here's who I have now. This will be our lineup for this time. Holland G, Katie G, Larry K, Nicole C, Marie J, and I think Barbara E. Is that right, Barbara? No. Who? Who? One more. Nancy P. Nancy P. Okay. Holland, will you start us off, please? I will, Penny. Thank you for your service. Why does God choose the messengers that He chooses? It's a mystery that we will never know. Bill Wilson was born unscrupulous, uh, just in anonymity, on November 26, 1895, in East Dorset, Vermont. By the time he was 11 years old, him and his sister Dorothy were abandoned by their parents who divorced because of his father's alcoholism. Bill's grandfather was an alcoholic. Bill's father was an alcoholic, and it ruined their marriage, divorce being quite scandalous in 1906. Dorothy and Bill were left to be raised by their maternal grandparents in East Dorset, Vermont. Bill grew up as a very determined child, a very awkward child, thin and tall. He had a severe inferiority complex, and he suffered from anxiety and depression his whole life. When he was 17 years old, the love of his life, Bertha Bamford, went to New York for what was described as a very routine operation, and she died on the table. And in 1917, at the age of 22, Bill fell into the first of his, um, I'm sorry, at the age of 17, not the age of 22, sorry. At the age of 17, he fell into the first of his, of his depressions, very deep depression. He was a very determined child. He found a violin in his grandfather's attic and worked so hard and so tirelessly, he became co-first chair of, uh, of his school's orchestra. He found a baseball glove up there, worked tirelessly, and became the starting shortstop and co-captain of his baseball team. He passed the Edison test, which is a very hard test to pass. Uh, it showed the, uh, that, that he had good math skills, good science skills. He could have worked with Edison as an apprentice, but chose not to, knowing that Edison would always be the number one man, and he never would be. Bill's personality was a very driven personality. He always felt that he had to work five times as hard to be half as good as everybody else. He always felt like an outsider looking in. And yet, he would change the world that he lived in forever. The sun will never set on the work that Bill Wilson did. As co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, it is generally accepted that the 20th century and the millenniums to follow will be known for three things. They will be known for man's flight 
airplanes flight into the atmosphere. They will be known for the computer slash nuclear age. And the third thing that they will be known for is the development of the 12 steps in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill was the only man to ever turn down the cover of Time magazine, although he was voted one of the most important people of the 20th century by that same magazine in 1999. He was called the greatest social architect of our time. And if we notice some things about Bill Wilson, the way he thinks and the way he drinks and the way he reacts, we can identify in. I only have three minutes. I'm done. So with that, I'll pass. Tune in tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you. Bye. I'll pass. (laughs) Thank you, Holland G. Now, Katie G. Good morning, Penny. Good morning, my fellows. KG, recovered compulsive overeater, anorexic and bulimic in Boston. And yeah, I mean, I just want to say, yeah, me too, me too. I mean, food um, was my earliest safe thought. It protected me. Um, and I I am, Bill. Um, you know, when I got into college and I could finally drink and eat on my own without the supervision of my mother, Food made life better. It was like this exotic thing, like in my fantasy. And um, and I remember when I first identified that I needed to put down the food, and I was so scared. Like, what was my life going to be if I didn't have sugar and flour and quantities? And, you know, what? who was I going to be without the food? Like, I, I, am I really, you know, going to – that's so – pathetic and um and the truth is what was so sad is that at the end of the day the best thing that was happening to me was food and starvation and and bulimia and um, anorexia and and it was cutting me to ribbons which is what bill talks about later and um i guess you know i also want to chime in on the on the warnings um for me you know, when I was just in this program working the tools, um, the tools are vital, right? They give me some relief while I'm getting through the steps, um, and the steps bring me the freedom. Um, but when I wasn't working the steps, when I was just showing up to meetings, you know, ominous warnings, like um, I've been talking to a lot of people, and, and I relate to thinking, you know, listening to this meeting and not having a sponsor is going to be fine. Like somehow I'm going to get through the steps on my own, or I'm not going to do really the steps. I'm just going to listen, and I'm going to get changed by listening. And I just want you to know, like I've road tested that bad solution, and it doesn't work. Um, maybe it will for you because you're a moderate eater or a hard eater, but I am a chronic, hopeless, compulsive overeater, just like Bill. And um, if I, you know, when I finally surrendered. Uh, coming out of relapse, you know, I called the sponsor and I stopped saying, yeah, but, and I started saying, yes, ma'am. I said, help me. Tell me what to do. Because, you know, this time that we have is so crucial that, that we're willing, right? And if I ignore these warnings of, you know, just a little bit of food isn't going to hurt me, and, and my disease speaks to me in my own language, I will get brought down. Food is waiting for me. It wants me dead. It will settle for me eating is what this disease is. So just like my plea to you is if you really identify having this illness like I do, put that fire under your butt. Call us. Let us help you. Let us get you through these steps so that you too can have freedom and a life beyond your wildest dreams. And um, I'm grateful to have this seat in OA for these 24 hours and looking forward to hearing the rest of you. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Katie G.
Larry, Larry K. Larry, we can't hear you. There I am. Hey, Penny. Good morning. Um, let me, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to piggyback on some of the things that Harlan shared because it really helps me. Bill's story, what's important is, is for me to identify in. You know, we all have our own life narrative that led us here, right? Didn't, didn't make me into a compulsive overeater, my life narrative. But it, it certainly, I had my traumas and my thing. You know, he, his parents were divorced at a time when divorce, as Harlan mentioned, was not, you know, this was not acceptable, you know, and he felt a lot of shame and remorse about that. He experienced, uh, he was raised by his grandparents that, you know, that I think that death of, of his first girlfriend, Bertha Bamford, really rocked his world, as you can imagine. He, he, he came from, an, you know, he had an alcoholic father. His grandfather was an alcoholic. Lots of emotional trauma, right? He had this kind of inferiority complex. He wanted to be, and they, we, we don't use that term, the number one man or the number one woman. But don't we want to achieve don't we want people to, you know, to think highly of us? I can relate to that. And yet he had anxiety and depression. I have anxiety. I have an anxiety disorder. I can relate to Bill. He must have had that too. And as a matter of fact, just prior to joining the military service, I read, you know, where we're reading here that he had a panic attack. He, he was on a train um, heading back to his, his school, and he had a panic attack, and he was he – was, um, you know, he was really troubled and, and he felt actually remorse about he wanted to do more for the military. So there he is. We're reading when he joins the military, but he was he was a troubled young man. And yet he was a high achiever. A lot of us come. I bet you had some perfectionism like a lot of us do. We bring to this to this disease. Right. So we're kind of, uh, you know, it's interesting. On the one hand, we can't control our eating or in his case, of drinking. And yet at the same time, he was a very high achiever. I need to identify in and relate to all, to all these different things. It doesn't matter if it was, you know, 100 years ago or it's uh, 2019. The point is, is that we come here on a losing streak. Bill, Bill but we, maybe, we, maybe we had some experiences, some traumas as children, growing up teenagers and so forth. But we get here and we're going to read and hear about the descent into the madness of this disease. Right now, he's on the rise. We're going to hear about him arriving in his own mind, and he's going to be ripped to shreds as this disease is, you know, rips us to shreds. So very important story. The first person really to qualify, right, in a sense, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. It's important for me to read. With that, I pass. Thanks. Thanks, Larry Kay. Nicole C., Good morning. This is Nicole C. in Morgan Hill, California. I, uh, morning. I, hi, thank you. Um, I remember the first time I read this, I thought, oh my gosh, what does this have anything to do with me or my problem? It was just like gibberish to me. It was just, I didn't get the language. I was like kind of probably not even processing any of it really, just kind of skimming through. Um, so if you're on the line and this just doesn't make any sense to you, just know I've been there too. Um, today is a little bit different. I can, I can relate to a lot of it. Um, today when we read it, the part that 
I related to the most was where he describes um, make, making, um, sorry, made to be felt heroic um, with love, applause, sublime moments, hilarious moments. And then he says, I was a part of life at last. And in the midst of excitement, um, I discovered liquor. Um, for me, I relate to that so much because that feeling of, you know, when I go into a room, it's not just okay for people to just say, oh, hi. You know, in my mind, I imagine that, you know, I am welcomed and I'm made to feel heroic and there's love and applause. Like people are applauding for me to come into the room and sublime moments, right? Um, hilarious moments. And being made to feel a part of requires that from me. If I'm in that state of untreated, um, you know, um, alcoholism, as Bill describes. And, um, you know, through, through the practicing of the steps in my life, through having a spiritual experience, I don't need those things to feel okay anymore. Like, I can bring something to the situation. I can help somebody else feel welcomed. I can help somebody else feel um, loved. Um, I don't need a big party or a golden ticket to feel okay, but I very much relate to Bill describing that here. I very much felt that way. Um, and where he describes, I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I remember the first moment I felt powerful with food. My mom was always questioning, like, why do you have to get the large size? Why can't you get the small size? And I just looked at her baffled. And I remember when I moved out of home, got my first place, I was so excited to get what I wanted from the grocery store. I could eat what I wanted, when I wanted it. And I remember exactly how it felt. It was a very powerful feeling. It was like I had control of my own destiny. I had control of my own life. And I felt really, really, really powerful. Um, and and I, I don't know that that happens for people that are normal eaters. I don't think it does. I don't know. Maybe it does. But for That's me, time. I just remember. Thank you. I just remember getting high off of feeling like that. Thank you for letting me share. I pass. Thank you, Nicole C. Marie J. Good morning, Marie. Marie, we can't hear you if you're speaking. Hi, can you hear me? Now I can. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Sorry about that. Marie J. recovered in Colorado. Um, I'm going to focus on I was very lonely and turned to alcohol. Um, because I didn't have the resources to survive, I needed to find affection and esteem and all those things to survive outside from other people. And that's what Bill is talking about here. He, these people made him feel heroic and they applauded. And it really speaks to ego, you know, Bill's ego, my ego, my powerful ego that constantly needs attention and reinforcement. And I really relate to Bill uh, having 
always having had an inferiority complex. And that's how I grew up also. And for whatever reason, I was just inferior. I was always not enough. And maybe that's from growing up in an alcoholic home. I don't know, but I was never enough. I was never good enough. I didn't do enough. I became extremely successful. And just like Harlan was saying that, you know, he went out and achieved and achieved and achieved. And I feel like I had to keep proving myself and keep getting more and doing more and being more. And I was always searching for this validation and and esteem outside of myself from people and circumstances and becoming more. And I just needed to get that validation from people. And you know what we know about people is most of us are self-centered in the extreme. You know, and my always looking for affection and esteem outside from other people is surely going to be a failure. And even occasionally when I get what I, what I think I need from outside of myself, then my bar goes higher, my expectations go higher so that I can always be sure to feel lonely and be sure to not get what I need because the bar just gets raised. Nothing is ever enough and, and other people's esteem for me will never be enough to fill that hole, that God-sized hole of not being enough. And so I became lonely. I just became, I was always lonely and I turned to food. And that gives me a temporary relief, maybe a few seconds, maybe a few hours, but it's temporary. And the only thing that fills my loneliness and my emptiness is a connection to this power, this power that's greater than me. I get to believe in the power of God. And every day I get to get up with my addict and I get to believe in this power and I get to surrender to it. And that is working recovery because I do sometimes it with that addict in my head, telling me I'm not enough, telling me I'm lonely, telling me I need to get fixed from outside. So I only have today and today's the only day I have to do this work. I don't have to think about the future. Today I get up, I get to give myself over to this power. I get to trust that this power is going to fill this hole of mine and fill me up and give me the affection and esteem I need so that I can come out and I can give it to those who are still suffering so that I can share what I've learned. So what I know is this power works and this power is powerful and I need to every day make that choice to turn it over. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks, Marie J. And now I have a Nancy, but I don't remember the, I don't have the last initial. Was there a Nancy I called? Hi, Penny. It's Nancy P. Recovered Nancy. from my break-in. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, I am. Um, um, so yeah, I came out here and I was like, Oh, Bill's story is so great and I opened my car door and every single thing in my whole car was strewn across everything and um you know, it was sort of shocking. Um so yeah, I like I had I had arrived several times in my life too, like the um original speaker was saying and others have said, you know, I lost weight and I was thin and but I you know, they used to call it being thin for a day when I, you know, back in the old days when I first came into program, they'd say, you know, I got there and then I immediately started gaining weight. And that has been my, um, that has been my, um, my story until I started working the steps. And, you know, like somebody else said, if you're only going to read the steps, good luck. 
you know, if you're if you're not gonna do the steps, you know, good luck. And you know, people have called me up and said, you know, something something whatever their thing is, and not, not that they're asking me for advice, but they want feedback. And I always ask the question, well, what are you gonna do? And if the answer is only pray, I always say, you know, that's not really the best answer. I know it's a verb, but you know, action is required. And um, and that's when I finally got that message, you know, another verb, to accept, to surrender. Those verbs, that's what I did. And, you know, to do this work, I, I, you know, cleaned out my closet. I, you know, I was telling somebody on the phone the other night who had to call someone, that, you know, who had recovered. I said the first three steps are like getting the tartar scraped off your teeth, you know, and then four, five, six, and seven are like getting your teeth polished. And 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are going out with your nice new sparkly smile. And that's sort of how I had to do it. And I never knew when I, you know, got to my goal weight after my um, first pregnancy when I gained 100 pounds, um, I thought, here I am. I'm, you know, I felt like I had been dry cleaned. And, you know, I wasn't. And, um, you know, after I worked these steps, I can say that I – don't worry about my weight. The problem has been removed. I don't worry about food. The problem has been removed. I don't worry about car break-ins. You know, I didn't have much in my um, in my car except a couple of rolls of quarters for the meters. And um, and thank God they didn't take my extra big book or any of my OA literature, which is in my glove compartment, should I need it in a pinch. Um, so thank you all for being there and with that I'll pass. Thank you, Nancy P. And now we have time for probably three more, two or three more people. Who else it's would okay. like to share? Judith R. Judith R. and Leah M. And um, that might be all we have time for. So let's start with Judith R. Good morning, Penny, and everybody. <clears throat> Judith R. in Fort Lauderdale on my way to Guatemala, and I just remember that when the way that Bill found out that his girlfriend had died was it was an announcement at their school, at a, at a, at a school rally or a school meeting, and they announced that she had died. And I just have always thought, oh, my God, what a shock. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Judith. Uh, Leah M. Thank you for your service. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. You know, that statement popped out at me this morning. You know, developing a relationship with alcohol, developing a relationship with the contents of cellophane bags and bakery boxes. You know, I just couldn't get comfortable, (laughs) even as a young kid. I had a rough time living. I was like an overfeeler, you know, oversensitive. Um, I just felt things very deeply. And, you know, it was hard to be comfortable when all my life I was trying to be somebody, feel like something, aspire to be equal, and desperately needed to be superior. You know, I look back at my childhood. I remember in first grade sitting in my little desk, and I was really offended when the teacher gave me 
the thick crayons instead of the more mature, thinner crayons. You know what I mean? I think back about the pride. I turned over my desk and I left the room. You know, don't insult me with fat crayons for little toddlers. You know, I'm in first grade. You know, it was like, uh, it was just the pride and the, and the desire to achieve and the desire to belong was already well established at such a young age. Here's another word I could never relate to. I could never relate to enough. I couldn't get enough love. I couldn't get enough security. I couldn't get enough praise. I couldn't get enough food. And so this relationship began to develop because food, compulsive overeating, did something to me that I couldn't find anywhere else. It fixed something. Food was the glue that held me together. And this illness, this disease began to strip me of self-esteem and self-worth and dignity and decency and integrity and honesty long before I got to you at the age of 19. It had been taken away long before I came to Overeaters Anonymous. I had been stripped of all that. My life was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards. So I do relate to this development of a facet of a personality driven, wanting to achieve, wanting to belong, wanting to be good, and yet never feeling like you make the grade. And food fixed that for a long time. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah M. And so as it turns out, we have time for at least one more three-minute share. Melissa C. Melissa M. Melissa C. Go ahead. And who was after Melissa? Laura M. Laura M. We'll see how we do. All right, Laura? Okay, Melissa C. Hi. Thank you, Penny. Thank you so much for your service. Melissa C. Recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And, you know, what what strikes me about Bill's story in this part is um, his inability, and I can relate to this, to just be in the moment without the the food or the substance to enhance or to remove whatever he's feeling. You know, if you've arrived, you know, normal people enjoy the experience of the arrival, of feeling good. Only a compulsive overeater like myself needs food to enjoy that experience or to somehow tolerate that experience. And the same thing with discomfort. You know, when lonely or depressed, um, you know, it's it's the diseased person in me who cannot tolerate the experience of having a human emotion, having a human feeling, and I need something to remove it, to numb it, whether enhance it. And so, you know, what strikes me is that I was always looking for a reason why. Why do I eat like this? Please tell me the reason why. Make it something excusable. Um, And then, I don't know, maybe through magical thinking and wishing, somehow knowing why I do this, I won't do it anymore. And, you know, what I get from the Bill story is the why is because I have this disease, because I'm a compulsive overeater. I don't need to look for any childhood trauma. Some of them exist, you know. 
I don't need to look for, like, things that my parents did to me or the way that life did me dirty. Those things existed, you know. But I'm a human being. I'm having a human experience. And, you know, and, like, newsflash for me, um, human beings suffer trauma. They suffer loss. They suffer joy. Um, and a healthy person does not rely on a substance to remove the experience of being human. And um, that's what this journey of recovery has been about for me. Thank you for that all pass. Okay. As it tu- thank you very much, Melissa C. And as it turns out, we have um, time for the next person, and I I didn't write your name down. That's okay. Good morning, Penny. This is Laura M. in Missouri. I had Laura. Laura M. Thank you. Yeah. Um, when uh, we were reading this morning, uh, the what caught my attention was. I was lonely and turned to alcohol, and my mind just stuck on those words, but it just stuck. And I, I felt like if I was going to share, that's what I needed to share about, but I didn't know how. So I just want to say how grateful I am for everybody that comes to this meeting and that shares their experience and strength and hope, because I heard my story a dozen times this morning and touched me so deeply. And it just reminds me more and more every day that that's how this program works and how how it has worked for so many years, you know, almost 100 years, because we come together and we share our experience. And so, you know, we come on this line and we say thank you for your service. And when I say thank you for your service, I mean the team, but I also mean every single one of you that speaks up and shares your truth because that serves all of us and it definitely served me today. And I just wanted to express my gratitude. Um, So thank you so very much. Have a wonderful day, I pass. Thank you, Laura M. And here we go. We got someone would like to share for just two minutes, no more. Barbara E. Okay, go ahead, Barbara. Two minutes, all right? Okay, I'll do my best. You time me. Hi, it's Barbara E. I just being repetitive. I don't know if you remember the words from a song from the musical Chicago called The Cell Phone Man. They fit me so perfectly. I was a little cell phone girl. That should have been my name because people I felt looked right through me. Um, I was inconsequential, invisible. Now, a human being should, they're built of more than air. They have bulk. But people just never found me impressive. That's the way I thought of it. I was undistinguished. You knew, you did not know who I was. So I found food. And food always knew who I was. And I wanted huge amounts of food. Now, I would do all kinds of things to get the food. I remember asking little Sandy Kruger in elementary school to go to the sweet shop so I could get a diet, not a diet, they didn't have them, Pepsi with chocolate syrup in the bottom. I was buying food to eat on the way home, and I lived in New York City. My goodness, that's a food lover's dream. 
I wrapped towels or washcloths around my thighs. I did not get invited to join any sorority. All ominous warnings that I took no heed of. I went to all kinds of pay-and-way programs, but I always forgot. I was desperate. I was lonely. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. And finally, I came into OA, and I found people who thought like me, who ate like me, who acted like me, and I heard there was a program of recovery, and I grasped onto it with both hands because, my goodness, 12 sizes in my closet. I never thought I'd live to see my kids grow up. So I thank you all for being there. My two minutes must be up. See you tomorrow. Thank you, God. Thank you, Barbara E. And thank you to everyone who shared, who read, or who just joined us to listen this morning. Please join us for a second unrecorded hour of study immediately following this closing. The share ID for today, Thursday, January 24th, 2019, is 12,458. That's 12458. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And Nadia B., would you read that for us, please? With pleasure. Thank you. Penny, for your generous service, Nadia B., gratefully recovered in Connecticut. Uh, this is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is so sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact part. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.